1: Hello, you're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire. Matt Shawley is still somewhere in the mid North Atlantic. More updates from him as we get them. But in his absence, we had a packed show today. For our big thing at 11 o'clock, we're talking about diplomacy at sporting events and what the Qataris really want to get out from those big crowds of foreign dignitaries. But Before then, we had our columnist panel, and it was a cracker today. Libby Purvis, Rachel Sylvester and Paul Johnson from the IFS talking Labour's plans to reform the Lords and new Labour market statistics.
2: The Columnists with Libby Rachey, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio.
1: Yes, it's time for... Uh, our All Star economists panel with Rachel Sylvester with me in the studio. Morning, Rachel.
3: Morning, Patrick.
1: And Libby Purvis, who joins us online now. Morning Libby. Morning. How are you, Libby?
3: Fine, well,
4: good.
1: Good, despite the weather. Rachel, how are you?
4: Very well, thank you.
1: Uh, there's plenty to discuss this morning, so let's let's get straight into it. Today, of course, is the deadline for Conservatives to say whether they want to stand at the next election. We've already had a pretty big cross-section of Tories saying they won't stand at one extreme you know grandees like Sajid Javid mainstays of cabinets over the past 10 years and then at the other end Deanna Davidson the Red Redwall uh, rising star who was the poster girl really for Boris Johnson's victory she won that totemic seat of Bishop Orkin from Labour only 29 is now saying she's going to stand down do you think more people are going to follow them today Rachel?
4: Well I I think it's a mixture of MPs who think they won't hold their seats at the election if there's a swing towards Labour and others who think actually they don't want to go into opposition. Uh, but I think the interesting thing is that there is now this sense on the Tory benches that they're not going to be in power after the next election. I was speaking to one minister the other day who said it's like cricket, you know, the Bush have got a sense of fair play and they just think it's the other side's turn. And it's almost a sense of kind of resignation about it. And, two two ways of that word you know so a lot of the MPs are getting out because they just can't face the thought of um not winning
1: and and it's a long hard slog isn't it getting a party back into a position where it can win an election in opposition you know it's not it's not fun it's not glamorous you lose the trappings of power and when you think we can be in opposition for about 10 years if you're Sajid Javid you're still relatively young you're 52 you think well I can go and have a pleasant life see the family I've neglected uh earn a bit of money. If you're Deanna Davis and you think, well, I'm only 29, I can perhaps live a relatively normal decade in my 30s, uh, rather than submit myself to the humiliation of losing my seat to Labour and trying to find another one.
4: And also, it's the sense that uh, MPs are trying to get out first so mm. that they get to the front of the line for the jobs in the city or wherever they think they're going to have their life after politics.
1: What do you, what do you think, Libby? Are you entirely uh, at all surprised by this?
3: Uh, not really, no. I was very depressed by a piece the other day really pointing out that, you know, a lot of them just feel that why should you uh, labour so hard as an MP and then be shouted at and insulted right, left and centre when you could earn more in business? Of uh, course, the answer to that is public service. My dad was a career diplomat and earned way less than he probably could have done in business or in advertising where he started. But he loved being a public servant. And I felt much the same way at the BBC. I was, I, I always thought it was dreadful to be agitating for higher pay if you were in a service like that but I think that's gone I think that's very old-fashioned point of view and not very many people have it now so we're going to lose a lot of good people I'm really sorry about Javid going because I think he's good Um, you know and I think he he could have made a big contribution Uh, I think it's it's bad that that there is this sense that oh well you know if you can earn more somewhere else you know why would you be an MP That's, that's really depressing
1: yeah it is interesting, isn't it? it's it's almost taking you know it's something I said without almost without thinking there the idea that conservative MPs, indeed any MP longs for the day they can go and earn proper money. It's something people like um, you know David Cameron was one who often would talk about wanting to or you know privately would talk about wanting to go and earn proper money uh, when he was when he was out. Uh, when he was out of office. Um, let's move on, shall we? That's a story we've uh, we've done to death on Tides Radio, Tory MPs. Libby, I know there's something exercising you. Uh, the government say today that workers are going to get the right to request flexible working arrangements on the first day of a new job, and that means they can be allowed to, uh, asked to be allowed to work from home, job share, go into the office only certain hours of the day. What do you think? If you were running a business Libby would you uh, would you be all for that?
3: Well there's two sides to this I think we have learnt an enormous amount in the Covid years and ought to benefit from it uh, about how work works you know and how sometimes flexible working you know which a lot of people need because they have other responsibilities or just prefer because it's how, it's how they want to live um, flexible working and working from home and all those things we've learnt a lot about how it can work a lot of employers are saying actually yeah we've learnt a lot from this and we can make things work differently. But I think it's important that we shouldn't be able to use the hiring shortage because, you know, you can't walk along any high street now without seeing desperate signs saying hiring now or indeed closed because of lack of staff, especially in hospitality things. Uh, We shouldn't use the hiring shortage to make the business of employing people even more of a problem than it legally and logistically is. So it's a fine balance. Uh, I think that the choice is always with the employer. You know, can I run my business efficiently with this person? And also the responsibility on the employee to really use the time that they are in the office or the time that they are at home working to use it profitably. Uh, I don't think we should make life even more difficult for employers than it is at the moment.
1: Rachel, do you get the sense that politicians know what they think about home working? Because, you know, you you have initiatives uh, like this, uh, but throughout the pandemic, Conservative ministers, you know, Boris Johnson one day was saying, yes, people should have the right to work from home. Then it was everybody should get back to the office. Um, There have been lots of mixed messaging from government about this, haven't there?
4: Yeah, Jacob rees Rock remember, telling the civil servants they had to come in and leaving notes on their desk. I think ministers are where everyone else is. Obviously, the pandemic has changed attitudes. People have realised that you can be more flexible and actually it might be more efficient to work from home and zoom in to some of the meetings. I noticed that PwC, the the big consultancy firm, is closing down its offices over Christmas and New Year to save money on energy. Mm. So there's all kinds of arguments in favour of more... flexibility. But it's just, I think you have to, people have much more, um, employees have much more of a sense of wanting to balance work and life, I think, post the pandemic. Uh, And employers are having to catch up and ministers.
1: Uh, And obviously, you know, both of you uh, have written plenty of columns in your time um, and have been no strangers to flexible working, I imagine, Libby.
3: No, oh, absolutely not. No, I mean, I, as soon as I started having children, I realized that actually, yeah, I had to be. I had a job which made me go to London once a week for the BBC. But apart from that, you know, you, I, I learned to run my own time. I was I was in the, the freelance economy from very, very early on. But of course, one of the reasons about one of the aspects of the freelance economy is you have no kind of security. You You really don't. You know, I mean, News International, uh, right now, News, News Corp can it, it can it can get rid of me at a month's notice. I, I'm sure that I'm uh, everyone sure I work everyone I work for can get rid of me at a month's notice. Um, but flexible working in a job which is secure is a slightly different thing. You know, that does it, it, there's a relationship between you and the employer. You know, where where there's there's many more chips on your side. So yeah, I mean, I think that the, the gig economy has taught people that flexible working can work, but some people. Really, a lot of people really do need the actual security of knowing that they've got a proper long contract and, uh, you know, the the, the flexibility is within it. And that gives you a great duty to use your flexi time for your employer really, really well.
1: And just before I let you go, Rachel, um, uh, our voters going to thank Keir Starmer? on the big political story this morning. Are they going to thank Keir Starmer or be terribly interested in what Keir Starmer is saying this morning about constitutional reform, abolishing the House of Lords, all that, All that carry on?
4: I've been writing about House of Lords reform for 20 <laughs> years and I think the problem at the moment is it's really not where voters are. They are not, you know, people are really worried about whether they can pay for their heating and their food. The idea of having an elected second chamber is not top of their, their agenda. But there is an interesting thing about Scotland, I think, and devolving more powers because if Labour Wants to uh, win a majority. It's going to have to win more seats in Scotland. So that could, in fact, be a more significant part of this package.
1: Uh, Libby, what do you think? What do you make of it?
3: <laughs> like Rachel, I have spent half my adult life wishing for proper Lords reform, which Blair sort of started and then gave up on. And what we ha- now have is a really disgraceful. At least half the House of Lords is pretty disgraceful. You know. That- political you know, Baroness moan, moan all the rest of it um I I want it done I want it done quickly I I am sick of it I don't I think people are sick of it uh, and uh, we, we could do with a better elected or appointed from professional bodies House of Lords but one which is not as as scummy as it is at the moment
1: joining us on the line is director uh, of the Institute of fiscal studies Paul Johnson morning Paul Morning. Uh, in your column in the business section of today's paper, you're looking at the educational attainment of different uh, minority ethnic groups and indeed ethnic groups across the, across the piece. And you found that white pupils are lagging behind most other ethnic groups at GCSE level. Tell us about the implications of that.
5: Yeah, it's uh, it's remarkable how different uh, different groups are actually. If you look within the ethnic minority population, there's more differences than there are actually between that group as a whole and whites as a whole. So, for example, black African students are doing really quite well, but black Afro-Caribbean students are actually lagging uh, furthest uh, behind. And there's some remarkable changes over time. Actually, if you look in the early two thousands, students or uh, pupils from Bangladeshi backgrounds were way behind. Uh, the white majority, they're now way ahead. So th- these are really big changes over relatively short periods. The, 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 the uh, uh, Children, uh, pupils from ethnic minority backgrounds, are much more likely to go to university than those from white backgrounds. But uh, once you get into the labour market, things look much less positive. And indeed, um, given their educational qualifications, nearly all ethnic minorities are earning less than you might reasonably expect, and, and why why is that? You
1: know, it's obviously a hugely complicated uh, picture. Is is it is it um, you know is it the nature of the jobs? Uh, Do think different ethnic groups go, then go on to hold in the labour market?
5: There's all sorts of things going on, and again, there are big differences between. Uh, groups. So, for example, men from uh, Indian um, ethnicity actually earn more on average than men from uh, white backgrounds, although, again, less than you'd expect given their education. Uh, There's uh, clear um, evidence of discrimination when you do blind trials or or, uh, job um, applications and so on. Those with um, ethnic minority-sounding names do less well than those with White um, sounding names. Uh, You also do get um, real uh, uh, um, uh, focus into different um, professions. Uh, So, if you look in the NHS, for example, um, there's a lot of people with an Asian background at senior levels there. But in teaching and the police, um, all ethnic minorities are dramatically under represented. And of course, we saw just a week or so ago, uh, these appalling revelations of what was happening in the London fire brigade. So there is clearly um, some racism, some discrimination going on in some sectors, uh, and uh, a whole series of other complex um, issues across the economy as a whole.
1: Uh, Rachel Sylvester, let me bring you in here. Uh, It's quite a, it's a big, Naughty policy issue this for for policymakers and, and ministers because it you know if you look at the statistics for instance you know a large proportion of most ethnic minorities achieve good GCSEs uh, more so than than white pupils despite being poor on average um, you know the plight of uh, white working class boys is something successive political leaders have tried and failed to get to grips with um, and among the uh, the poorest pupils uh, between ten and thirty percent more children of Pakistani Bangladeshi Black African Indian heritage achieve five good GCSEs uh, than do uh, the poorest white But then as Paul sets out very clearly there, it doesn't translate to success in in the labour market. Um, It's a very tricky issue, isn't it?
4: I think what's really fascinating is it shows that it isn't all about race and colour, so particularly in education. um, I was really struck by those findings that Paul highlighted, which we also heard about when I was chairing the Times Education Commission. Uh, And one of the things that really struck me is that 40% of the gap between rich and poor pupils that emerges by the age of 16 is there before the age of five. So a lot of this is to do with actually what happens in the home and parenting attitudes. I remember one head teacher who um, had taught in a white working class area, and she just talked about how in the parents' evening, one of the fathers said to the child, oh no, we don't read, that's gay. Um, wow. And, you know, it, we heard from the actor Eddie Marson, um, who grew up in a sort of white working class uh, family in Bethnal Green, and his father literally threw a book across the room when he tried to read. So there's attitudes to learning in families that is part of the problem. And one of the things that's so interesting is that the higher academic outcomes in London are partly to do with the high number of immigrant families. Um, so there's about, it's about aspiration and what families and parents um, show to their children uh, that matters um mm. as much you know that and that is if anything as as important as as the wealth of the family
1: what do you make of it libby
3: it's absolutely crucial exactly what what rachel says the family thing and also families attitudes to the teachers you know you talk to teachers and and they they sometimes just get absolutely sort of sp- Scorned and spurned and berated and, and told off for even the slightest, most reasonable act of discipline against their children. Uh, I think you need a sense of parents and teachers together, um, and uh, some of that really just has to come from the parents' side. You know, you can't expect you know teachers to just solve everything. You can't expect schools to solve everything. A lot is about families.
1: Yes, and it's as Rachel says, it's the the early years. Is uh, you know often neglected in our political debate because we you know we talk about schools constantly, but it's it's uh, it's early years, isn't it? That is, you know, politicians like Andrew Leadsom have focused on this for a very long time, um, and, and many others. Um, but you know it's it's not as it's not as easy for people to and policymakers to grasp sometimes is it that the the early years and it's also harder to intervene because you're talking about people's
4: homes well they're worried about being seen as the nanny state but actually the problem is so much of the damage is done before children get to school uh, and policies like sure start did make a real difference it's not kind of nanny state it's helping parents know what's the right thing to do I, don't, I remember a really fascinating conversation with Angela Rayner, the Labour deputy leader, who talked about how when she was growing up, her mum, you know, was had uh, mental illness. She, she didn't really have any role model mm. for parenting. So she didn't know that she was supposed to hug her son and talk to him. She then went to... Uh, it was only when she went to sort of Shore Start Nursery that they said, you know, you do have to interact with your child. She then realised that w- what actually being a parent was. And then her own son... Instinctively picked up his daughter and um, swung her around and hugged her. And she said, Andrew Rayner said that had broken the link of sort of deprivation, mm. the vicious cycle.
1: And, and just uh, briefly, Paul Johnson, before I let all of you go, um, the CBI is predicting on another subject that the economy is going to shrink by 0.4% next year. That was a downgrade on June's estimate of a 1% rise in GDP. Um, the government says it hopes this recession, the coming recession, is going to be shallow and short. Um, is that still looking likely?
5: Well, I think what the CBI is saying is pretty much in line with what the Bank of England and the Office of Budget Responsibility and everyone else is saying, that we are uh, probably in recession now, that we're going to have potentially quite a long, though hopefully a relatively relatively shallow recession over the next year or so. Of course, it depends to some extent what happens to energy prices. A lot of this is being driven by the fact that we've got poorer because we import so much energy and the price of energy has gone up. Um, so much and we're all suffering I mean virtually everyone's wages are failing to keep up with um, with prices Uh, and so it's a very different kind of recession to some that we've had in the past it doesn't look like it's going to be one with large amounts of unemployment but it does look like it's going to be one in which we are all a little bit worse off um, over that period and the real question is how long that's going to last and when we get back into some sort of growth and if we get away with Um, something which is pretty flat for a year and then get back to growth that you know that it could have been a whole lot worse that was our economist panel and you can read rachel paul and libby in the times every week just head to
1: our website and get a digital subscription at thetimes.co.uk forward slash times red box now for our big thing on sporting diplomacy
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Times Red Box Politics Podcast. Now it's time for this The Big Thing on Times Radio. Now, we're at the midway point of the World Cup 2022 and England's performance last night against Senegal proved they mean serious business on the pitch in Qatar. Uh, They won 3-0, of course. uh, But what other sort of business and diplomatic negotiations are happening behind the scenes of this lavish £200 billion festival? of sporting excellence. Uh, Well, if you say sporting excellence, you mustn't have seen Wales. But anyway, exactly how much hard power politics is at play around the edges, on the margins of this World Cup, Uh, whilst the diplomats in question enjoy all the Middle Eastern opulence reserved for those who can influence and wield power. In our big thing today, we'll be taking a closer look at the wheeling and dealing in Qatar uh, with our man out there, special correspondent for the Sunday Times, Josh Glancy. uh, We'll bring you the most intriguing examples of sporting diplomacy over the last few decades with the uh, with the eminent former foreign correspondent and now leader writer for The Times. Michael, you've been flattered uh, in our script today, Michael Thank Binion. You. And for a taste of what it's like being on the inside of those crucial, often tense geopolitical meetings, Sir Roderick Line also joins us, former ambassador to Russia. So first of all, let's head straight to Doha, uh, where Josh Glancy from The Sunday Times has been keeping tabs on who's meeting who. I caught up with Josh, uh, live from Qatar, a little earlier, and I began by asking him, whether at times Qatar can feel a bit like an international summit with some football happening in the background.
6: It can do if you know where to look. I, I think most, most fans here are, are just doing a bit of tourism and watching football. Um, but there is a lot of diplomacy going on behind the scenes and, and there is a, the World Cup fits into a broader diplomatic geopolitical strategy for the Qataris. This isn't just something they did because they fancied the bling and hosting a tournament, although that's a big part of it. That that they also see football uh as a big piece of their their broader strategy um to make themselves a safe, prosperous, and sort of um long-term proposition <laughs> in the world.
1: So let's uh let's start with the US and Qatar then. Uh Anthony Blinken uh met uh, senior officials in Qatar. This was in public, actually it wasn't a uh as you know slap up dinner behind closed doors he gave a press conference with uh, qatar's foreign minister and was lavishing the qataris uh, with praise
2: minister Mohammed, thank you Uh, thank you for your uh, wonderful hospitality thank you for the very good and detailed conversations that we just had as part of the fifth strategic dialogue Uh, so we meet at what is a high point of the five decade-long diplomatic relationship between our countries uh, on every issue that matters to our nations. Our collaboration, I think it's fair to say, is deeper and our people are the better off for it. The security ties between us have never been stronger.
1: Where, where does this fit into that diplomatic, uh, diplomatic negotiations you were talking about, Josh? Is this all about oil and gas?
6: Well, a lot of it is, yeah. I mean, I, I was alerted to all this. I went for dinner with a bunch of American members of Congress who were over basically on a jolly uh, to watch the USA-Wales game and, we were all sitting out on Doha's waterfront, uh, eating sushi and smoking cigars, and it all seemed very convivial. Uh, And it suddenly clocked for me that there was a lot going on that wasn't football here. And Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State was also over for that game. uh, The USA Wales, he's a big football fan. Um, But he was also quite lavish in his praise for Qatar in a speech he gave here. um, Because Qatar has become an important ally to the US in the region. Obviously, they sit on the world's third largest gas reserve. Gas is obviously very important at the moment. And they've stepped in to plug a lot of the holes left by Putin's war in Ukraine. They have a lot of liquefied natural gas here, which is everyone's favourite energy source right now. But they were also very helpful to the Americans in Afghanistan. The Biden administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan turned into something close to a debacle. Um, But the Qataris who have close links to the Taliban, were able to help extract various Americans and smooth over what was a pretty rough month for the Americans out there. So there is some gratitude in Washington towards Qatar. And just talk us through,
1: Josh, what, you know, you say you've been for dinner with uh, with, with American diplomats, sort of, you know, we, associ- we associate the Gulf with, you know, opulence and um, They've shipped over basically every uh, acclaimed restaurateur from the great cities of of the West over there. What 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 sort of you know is, what's on offer for people who want to do high level schmoozing in uh, in Doha? Uh,
6: everything you can imagine. As you say, it's like a global emporium of all the all the brands. Uh, you know, I had I had tea in the Harrods Tea Room yesterday. There's Nobu. There's Hakkasan. There's the Nuzret Steakhouse where you can get the Salt Bay Gold Leaf steaks. It is uh, the, the Ned Hotel has opened here, um, a favourite watering hole of London's city bankers. Um, Ronaldo and Beckham have been there. Um, it really is a, a kind of global carousel of elite brands and um, everything you can imagine they've, they've imported in.
1: Just to, just to wrap this up, come five years or ten years what do you think the Qataris want for their outlay what is the sense you've got from from what they want because obviously at the start of the tournament there was a huge amount of focus on LGBT rights on, on broader questions of human rights and it looked like this might have this might have backfired but obviously as you say the Qataris are also playing a much um, a much bigger geopolitical game would you say if in five or ten years time um, they are their status as one of the Biggest exporters of liquefied natural gas to the West is confirmed that their um, defence relationships with the West have been have been copper bottomed by this tournament. Is that the sort of thing they want to get out from this to be a real sort of a power player, a sort of pivot point in the Gulf for the West, rather than uh, getting the you know benediction of liberal opinion?
6: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, they they would have liked some better PR. Let's let's not kid ourselves that they have had a pretty miserable time of things uh, with the media. In the last year or two and so they are quite fed up by that but there is as you say a broader strategy here you know and a lot of this world cup is not focused on pleasing uh western liberals it's focused on becoming a, a hub and a magnet for african wealth for south asian wealth and becoming a place where people go on holiday from those part regions as well but as you say i mean they, they see themselves here they compare themselves a lot to singapore if you talk to diplomats here and they want to be this very wealthy, very well run, kind of international entrepot, but they need to stay safe because they have this huge gas field, they have Iran on one side, Saudi on the other, they can't realistically defend themselves. So they need to be liked and known by America, and by other major powers, um, so that they are protected and can continue to enjoy their wealth and, and sort of fortify their future. So I think the World Cup is, is a big part of that, because it's brought them a lot of attention. And it's brought them a lot of sort of relevance to the world. And I think that relevance they see as is, is a shield to some extent.
1: Well, that was Josh Glancy, special correspondent from the Sunday Times, reporting from Qatar, uh, speaking to me a little bit earlier this morning. Now, the Qataris aren't the first uh, nation to try and mix diplomacy and sport. Uh, One man who has seen plenty of this over the years is Michael Binion, who was the foreign correspondent for The Times for many decades. And he's joined me in the studio to look back at some of the more significant geopolitical meetings at sporting events. Morning, Michael.
7: Yes, well, I suppose uh, the famous one is ping-pong diplomacy, which was in 1971, at a time when China and America were really barely on speaking terms, and the red menace was about all that anyone thought about of China. And unexpectedly, the Chinese invited an American team to come over and join them in ping-pong matches, well, ping pong's quite a big thing in China. I can't say that it's that big a game in America, but it was significant because it was a real sort of reaching out and opening and that paved the way for the groundbreaking visit uh, only seven months later of President Nixon to China and after that the whole rapprochement with China got going.
1: Because, because sport, you know, cordial sporting relations between nations can often, say, normalise
7: uh, relations at a political level, can't they? They can, but they can go wrong. Mm. I mean, the famous one was 1914, the Christmas Truce, when suddenly troops from both the German and British trenches got out and met in no man's land and played football. And everyone thought, gosh, you know, here at last we can perhaps get some reconciliation going. But the commanders on each side uh, were furious at this fraternisation and then uh, a day or two later ordered them back and firing started only a few days later. Well, well, let's stay on the constant, shall
1: we? Um, You know, you've been uh, reporting at the Times for a long time, but not quite this long. Uh, the Olympic Games in 1936 is, is, is an example that's often evoked. Um, you know, when Russia hosted the World Cup in 2018, uh, there were comparisons made with the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936, which was used by Hitler as a, as a showcase uh, for Nazism. But also, as you say, um, backfired when Hitler refused to meet Jesse Owens, and the true nature of uh, Nazism's views on race was was sort of revealed to the world at that point, wasn't it?
7: Yes, it was. I mean, everyone thought that the organisation was terrific, and it was very uh, martial and military, and you know, plenty of flags, and uh, it that impressed a lot of people. But uh, as you say, uh, when Hitler clearly snubbed Jesse Owens, walked out because he wouldn't meet a black person, he wouldn't shake hands with a black person that was part of Hitler's racial ideals everyone saw that was a regime based on race hatred
1: and and obviously the there's a there's a choice when uh, controversial regimes host these events countries can either go and uh, you know equivocate and make protests or not as we've seen in Qatar um, England team and ended up not wearing the uh, the one love armband in protest or you can mount a boycott that's happened in 1980 when Moscow hosted the Olympic Games.
7: I don't think boycotts usually work. I mean, the 1981, as you say, was a, a global attempt to put pressure on Russia over the invasion of Afghanistan, led by America. Uh, it didn't really work. The Americans boycotted, the Germans did. Britain officially boycotted, but said that its athletes were free to go if they wanted, and nearly all of them did go. So, effectively, it was a sort of fairly meaningless boycott it left a sour taste in the mouths of the russians it didn't actually make much difference to the result because apart from the americans almost everybody was there but it left a stain on the olympics because the russians in turn then boycotted the next lot of olympics which were held in america and i think finally the games has got over this this idea of boycotts it, it just doesn't really work and when you know when
1: dignitaries descend on a on a city for the olympics or a, or a world cup um are the meetings they have, the the, the informal brush the the chats in the stands, can they prove just as consequential as, say, a in in their own way, as a as a formal bilateral, at a, as a G twenty or or a G seven or a or a big international summit? Are, are these the sort of informal encounters that really, I guess, uh, solidify a relationship between two sides, or can can break the ice of, of difficult international uh, international relations?
7: Oh, undoubtedly. I mean, it's just the right atmosphere where people are not focusing on the politics. You've not got this press uh, watching your every move and your every gesture. The press are looking at the sport, mostly, and these things can go on quietly in the stands if they're sitting near to it or next to each other or just uh, sort of near the match uh, where they meet afterwards. And they can have some fairly meaningful discussions which are sort of more or less off the record but can break the ice and can do a lot in terms of advancing bilateral relations.
1: And for a country like Qatar, um, obviously it's very influential uh, in its own way, in 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 the Gulf, and um, there you know has no shortage of attention in, in normal times. But it's a once-in-a-blue-moon opportunity. The, the entirety of the world and its leaders uh, have at some point passed through Qatar in this in in this month it, it, in buying the World Cup, essentially, as, as the allegation goes. um they have bought um, effectively one long international summit and the uh, the attention of world leaders, haven't they?
7: They have. Yes, I suppose. Uh, More valuable to the world is the meetings between uh, statesmen who are not necessarily talking about Qatar. Mm. I mean, Qatar is, you know, a a state that's really pushing uh, pretty hard and and punching above its weight. But nevertheless, uh, more significant would be sort of meetings between, say, Chinese and Americans or between um, other countries, you know, France and Say France and Britain. I mean, I think uh, the match uh, France Britain will see some some interesting diplomacy in the background. And and, and as you say, France England. Sorry, indeed, indeed, <laughs> indeed. As you say,
1: you know, for a Chinese official to meet a, a, an American official quietly in Qatar, where lots of other things are, are happening, is. Is a uh, is a is a almost a a better way to do it, or a more effective way to do it, quietly effective way to do it than doing so in in hyper formal settings where you've got the the glare of the media on, upon you.
7: Yes, exactly, and I mean that's what statesmen seek and and look for, and that's that was the original idea of the G seven. It was meant to be a fireside chat that mm. the French invited seven uh, leading economic countries to have a sort of quiet informal uh, meeting uh, at uh, in in Paris. Uh, it's morphed into something much more formal and much more structured, which I don't think necessarily is better. But the original concept was exactly that. It was a sort of informal meeting where they could chew things over without actually being on the record.
1: Well, one another man who is very familiar with these sorts of discussions is Sir Roderick Lyon, uh, Britain's former ambassador to Russia, who joins me now. Good morning, Sir Roderick. Good morning. Um, You have experience of uh, mixing diplomacy and sport. You actually set up a meeting uh, to ease tensions between the UK and Russia at an equestrian event involving Prince Philip, I believe. Tell Tell us about that.
8: Well, you're giving me too much credit for setting it up. What happened was that in 1971, the British government, then led by Ted Heath, threw 105 Soviet spies out of London, which is still a world record. And that led to a deep freeze in our relations for the next couple of years. It wasn't really to the Russians' advantage to maintain this. They were trying to get detente going, but they couldn't find a way to get themselves off the hook. And they weren't giving us visas, and they weren't talking to us, and they wouldn't have British ministers out. They canceled an invitation to Ted Heath to come to Russia, and they were sort of stuck. Uh, And we weren't going to offer them any concessions, And then it turned out that in the autumn of 1973, the European three-day event uh, Equestrian Championship was due to be held in Kiev, which in those days was part of the Soviet Union, happily not now, and the reigning European champion was Princess Anne. Royal family had never set foot in the Soviet Union because the Bolsheviks had murdered their relatives back in 1917. They felt a bit rough about it, though Prince Philip had always said he wanted to go there, uh, despite the fact that they were, as he called them, murderous bastards. And um, he was the chairman of the International Equestrian Federation. So Princess Anne said she was going to come to defend her title. Prince Philip said as the chairman of the Federation, he was going to come. The government agreed that they could go as long as this was a private sporting visit, nothing official. So I was the poor dog's body in the Moscow embassy who had to make all the arrangements for this, uh, which was a royal pain. Um, But it all worked very well. And out they came. Prince Philip came to Moscow. And he was treated as if he was a head of state. He wasn't treated in the way he wanted to be treated, as a private visitor. He was given a huge banquet in the Kremlin by President Podgorny and made to go through lots of very, very boring meals when he actually wanted to have a bit of fun. But it worked, because then, in the course of all of this, the Russians said, oh, we'd love to have the Queen here. We'd love to have the Prince of Wales here. And, oh, yes, we would love to have your Prime Minister here. And two months later foreign secretary came out and the hatchet was buried all as a, a completely accidental result of this uh, sporting visit.
1: And without <laughs> without without the sporting event uh, there would have been as you say no trigger for that discussion and certainly if it, 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 as we've been discussing with, with Michael Binion um, making a request for bilateral talks is often fraught it can be interpreted as hostile but when you have uh, you have the sport as a as a pretext for getting leaders around a, around a television or a, on a, on a stand together. It's um, altogether more straightforward, isn't it?
8: Well, it creates a different atmosphere. I remember in the early nineteen nineties when we were having quite complicated negotiations with the Irish government at the beginning of the peace process. We invited Albert Reynolds and his uh, deputy, Spring, a former <coughs> Irish rugby international to London for talks on the morning of an England-Ireland rugby match. Those were the best talks we ever had. They were in a fantastically good mood. We then all drove out to Twickenham together, sat in the Royal Box, uh, and then to put the icing on the cake for the Irish, we allowed them to win the match. And that did an enormous amount of good for our negotiations.
1: And 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 of course, as ambassador for, uh, to Russia, uh, you'll remember uh, and something William Hague has written about very entertainingly in the I'm Times, uh, Putin's visit to London for the Olympics, watching the judo with uh, with half the government.
2: Yes,
8: um, I think David Cameron's relationship with Putin was bookended by two Olympics, the London Olympics. Putin came after the Georgian War, after the murder of Litvinenko, at a time when he'd obviously gone to the bad. He was locking up people at home, there a lot of demonstrations against. A, but uh, he and Cameron seemed to get on while watching the judo. And David Cameron thought that he'd established some kind of a bond with Putin. And rather naively, he thought that through his personal relationship with Putin, he could get this guy to behave rather better. And then the following year, Cameron was out in Sochi for talks with Putin. And Putin gave him a, a personal tour of the Sochi Olympics, which they were building up for the Winter Olympics, the construction. About 50 British companies were involved in the construction. And Cameron and Putin said, yes, British and uh, Russian security services, amazingly, would work together on security for the Olympics. And then the following February, Cameron did not go to the Sochi Olympics because by then it was fairly obvious to him that Putin, I think, uh, was a bad hat. Um, And they had a bit of a row uh, at St. Petersburg in the previous autumn. And that was February 2014, and thank goodness Cameron didn't go, because in March of 2014, Putin started his war on Ukraine, and that was the end of, I think, a rather ill-judged attempt by David Cameron at personal diplomacy, which started at the London Olympics.
1: And and just before I let you go, Sir Roderick, observing uh, the the long uh, list of international dignitaries heading to Qatar uh, for talks formal and informal and, of course, a bit of football too, uh, would you say, despite the controversy, uh, that the Qataris would think this has been a diplomatic success for them?
8: Uh, I would have thought so. They've put a massive investment into it, but they have put themselves very much on the world map, not just as a provider of oil. Uh, and uh, they will, I think, feel that this has paid off in a big way.
1: Well, Sir Roderick Lyon, former British ambassador to Russia, and Michael Binion, uh, leader, writer, and former foreign correspondent for The Times, thanks very much. Looking ahead, uh, you may think that Qatar... Hosting of this World Cup has been less than straightforward uh, and less than a triumph. Um, but their ambitions don't stop here. There are reports that they're now preparing a bid to host the Olympics in 2036, um, the Summer Olympics, that is, uh, with air-conditioned streets for marathon runners. Matt Lawton, chief sports writer at The Times, has this story uh, for us. So, has this World Cup then, uh, which has been, you know, less than uh, less than unanimously welcomed uh, on the world stage? Um, are we now seeing that this World Cup has given the Qataris confidence to go for the biggest sporting prize of them all?
2: Yeah, I think it has because, look, aside from all the issues that we've been reporting on, all the human rights issues, the gay rights issues, what they feel they have demonstrated is their ability to successfully stage an event like the Olympics. Because actually this World Cup is much more like an Olympics than it is a World Cup because normally when we, we, we go... we you know, we, we watch World Cups or we cover World Cups there. They're spread across huge countries. They're, they're, you know, in the case of 2002, they're spread across two countries, Japan and Korea. But this is different in that it's much more like the Olympics because Olympics, Olympic, the Olympic Games is normally focused predominantly around one major city. Uh, and that's essentially what this, this tournament is. And they feel that um, it has been a success. They feel that it's all run incredibly smoothly. And to be honest, if you spend 200 billion quid on something, including a $36 billion um, uh, metro system, it, it tends to work, I guess, because it has worked. It, I have to say, it has run very smoothly and it has, from purely logistical perspective, been a very good World Cup so far.
1: And, and do you think the IOC will look at this and think, yes, the huge issues with temperature and climate aside, this is something we we may well go for?
2: Look, Yeah, uh, I think, the the fact that the Qataris have been rejected three times already by, by the IOC is significant. Um, perhaps the IOC are a little bit more queasy about some of, the, uh, some of the issues that we've been reporting on compared to an executive committee that uh, voted on this in 2010 and since have been, well, quite a number of them have been either dragged out of hotels with blankets over their heads or, or generally found to be guilty of corruption. But the IOC... May still be queasy about bringing an Olympic Games here. But I think as time goes on, what the IOC are finding is that fewer countries are prepared to deal with the expenditure involved in staging an Olympic Games. It is scaring people away because it is so expensive to build this, you know, 32 sports, 32 different venues in many cases. But Qatar, money is no object indeed
1: indeed and when, and when will we find out who uh, if not qatar is hosting the 2036 games
2: probably 2026 uh, by which time we may well have a new president it could be somebody like lord coe it could be there's one or two other options you know lord coe hasn't declared a desire to run for president yet, but many people think he might do. So it could be a different looking IOC by then. And, and we expect rivalry from countries like Turkey and India, perhaps even Saudi Arabia. It may be that they have to form a joint bid with Saudi Arabia to get the Olympics to this part of
1: the world. But We'll see. Well, we'll see indeed. We'll see if Qatar's lobbying uh, at this World Cup uh, helps it secure the biggest sporting prize of them all, the Olympics in 2036. That was our big thing at 11 o'clock with Michael Binion, Roderick Line, Matt Lawton and Josh Blanty from the Sunday Times. That's all we got time for on today's podcast. Uh, I'll be here all week. And don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your pods from.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
4: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.